Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a particularly interesting new history book, and we interview its author. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Gerald Steinacher on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Nazis on the Run, How Hitler's Henchmen Fled Justice. When I was a kid, I loved movies about Nazis who had escaped Germany after the war. You probably remember some of them. There was the Marathon Man... The Boys from Brazil, and of course the Odessa File. I really liked the Odessa File because it told it like it was, how the Nazis formed a secret organization to get themselves out of Germany so that they could return to power. Unfortunately, that's not what happened at all. Sometime after the war, someone, we don't know who, tricked Simon Wiesenthal into believing that Odessa existed. He was very willing to be tricked. Then Frederick Forsyth amplified the myth in his book, the Odessa file, and then finally Hollywood gave it the Hollywood treatment in a movie of the same name. And Hollywood tricked me, and I think everyone else. But if you read Steinacher's book, you'll see that the Odessa file is a myth. And actually, the reality is more mundane and, in a sense, more frightening. There was a sort of conspiracy among the Nazis to escape the crumbling Reich, but it just wasn't very conspiratorial. Even before the war was over, they were planning their escape. They talked about it. They exchanged tips. They made contacts abroad. They experimented with various routes. And finally, they settled on one that was determined to be the best, and it led through Austria into Italy and then abroad. They had a lot of help. Some of it was for pay, as through Tyrolia, and some of it was free. A German bishop in Rome helped them. And there was the International Red Cross. They were giving out papers of the two freely, and then the OSS, of course, was trying to hire some of them. Add all this up and you have a very well-trod, well-known path out of Germany, through Austria, through Italy, and then, as I said, abroad. This was known to anyone who was paying attention. It was not really a secret. And that, as I said, is to some extent more frightening than any Odessa. I really enjoyed talking to Gerald today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview so without further delay, here it is. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. Today we're talking with uh, Gerald Steinacher about his new book, Nazis on the Run, How Hitler's Henchmen Fled Justice. I knew very little about how the Nazis or principal Nazis got away, those that did before I read Gerald's book. Most of what I knew came from a movie called The Odessa File. And in the very first pages of Gerald's excellent book, all of my myths and beliefs were shattered utterly because the Odessa file didn't exist. We'll, we'll come to talk about that in a second. Nonetheless, I, I think it's still a good movie. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I'm not a movie critic. But in any event, it's more or less pure mythology, as Gerald points out. And for that reason alone, I suggest the millions of you that have seen the Odessa file should probably read this book to find out what actually happened. And in many ways, as Gerald points out, the the reality of the situation was uh, more frightening than any Nazi conspiracy. At least it was more frightening to me. And I think we'll talk about that during the course of the interview, too. But, Gerald, why don't you kick us off, so to say, 
by telling us a few words about yourself. Yeah, I was born uh, on the Italian-Austrian border in a region of Tyrol uh, in Central Europe. And I don't know why, but I was very much interested in history all my life. When I was six years old, basically, I told my parents I want to become a historian. <laughs> they were, of course, yeah, they were not they so must have, Yeah, that, right, they must have been father. really upset. <laughs> yeah, my father was a little bit uh, <laughs> nervous because the career as an historian is not so promising no, normally. No, Especially money-wise. Yeah. But, you know, I, I became 12 years old, 14 years old, and I still wanted to become a historian and never changed. Then I went to the University of Innsbruck, and then in, uh, to Italy, the University of Rome, and to the University of Trento in northern Italy. Mm -hmm. Got my master's thesis, and in 1995, 1996, I was basically sent to New Orleans, in Louisiana, at the University of New Orleans there, as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. This was my first experience in the United States, and I learned an awful lot about the U.S. history but also a different approach in academia and book writing, mm -hmm. different understanding of history writing, of, of, of science, because history in Europe, in German-speaking countries, is, this, is considered a science, mm -hmm. uh, like natural sciences, like chemistry or medicine, but of course not in the U.S. It has a very different mm -hmm. standing in society, so to speak. Then I returned back to uh, Europe, I became an um, historian in northern Italy, uh, in this border, province of South Tyrol, that's a mostly German-speaking area, but it is in Italy, directly at the Austrian border. I was annexed by Italy after the First World War in 1920, and I was an archivist there and an historian uh, for many years, until recently, actually. In 2006, I worked at the Holocaust Museum um, as a research fellow, and um, in the last two years, basically, I'm spending Harvard. Harvard University as a mm -hmm. research fellow, and I started to work as an assistant professor here at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, in August 2011. So mm -hmm. this is my story, and I still love history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. You know, I didn't, I, I don't think, I decided to become a historian until I got to college. Yeah, I don't think I did. Um, yeah. Also, I should say that from the point of view of Iowa City, where I am, Lincoln is like New York. <laughs> That's the way we think. Wow! It. We go wow. to Lincoln for the, to see the big city. Comment, okay? Yeah. No, I'm serious. I we really, I do, I do like Lincoln. It's really nice. It's, I think it's a really nice town. Um, I really like it. I really like it. It's a good place to do research. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, the people from the East Coast sometimes, especially the ones who've never been to the Midwest, they bitch about it a lot. Yeah, they know, do. And how, how can you live there? How can you move there and so on? <laughs> But I think it's much, much better than people think. Oh, no, it's Especially very nice. for, you know, it depends what you want, of course, from your life. But yeah. there are many benefits here. There are many. Yeah. Oh, I, like, I grew up in the Midwest, as people who listen to this show probably know, because I never failed to mention it. Um, and uh, I, yes, I, I, they're, they're great charms that I think people on the East Coast and the West Coast miss. And I'm glad that you appreciate them. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the origins of the, this book. As I told you in the pre-interview, in a certain sense for you, this was local history because a lot of it takes place uh, exactly where you were uh, born and lived for many years. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the origins of Nazis on the Run? Well, that's a good question. And I have to think about it a little bit. I think one origin was, uh, as you said earlier, I mean, I grew up in this border region and then later I was a historian there, kind of a state historian. 
And when the first books came out a few years ago with the opening of the archives after the end of the Cold War, because I always tell people the Cold War didn't just end in the East, it also ended in the West. Mm. What I mean is that the archives in Western Europe and also in the U.S., some archives at least, were closed, were you know not accessible during the Cold War years. They were only opened after the end of the Cold War. And this was very important for this kind of topic, for the afterlife of National Socialism, for the escape of perpetrators in Nazis after 45. So archives, archives became available, and the first books came out, the first academic mm-hmm. studies came out uh, in the li- late 1990s with the Commission of Historians in the U.S., in Argentina, and many other places. And uh, I was a historian uh, in this northern Italian province of South Tyrol, and I was reading that uh, this area seems to have played a very important role, especially people like Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the paragraphs of the so-called Final Solution, the Holocaust, but also uh, concentration camp doctors and criminals like Josef Mengele, mm-hmm. probably also very famous in the U.S., uh, and they assumed new identities. They got new identities from the South Tyrolean region. They went to Italy mm-hmm. before they got out. So the, the role of Italy, and I started to ask myself, why in the world is this region so important? Why in the world, in all these different places of Europe, why exactly in my region, so <laughs> to speak, uh, why did these people uh, you know, stop there and got new identities? And I immediately started to ask questions. Who helped them? Is it a coincidence? And then I realized, it was not just my border region of South Tyrol, where many of these German-speaking uh, population, German-speaking, uh, you know, locals, were helping perpetrators for various reasons. But it was Italy in general that became kind of the loophole for former Nazis and SS officers, for perpetrators of the Holocaust and war criminals, in order to get out of Europe and to escape from justice. And that's actually how my research started. Why South Tyrol? Why this border region? was so important for getting new identities, assuming new identities uh, in order to obtain uh, travel documents, identity papers, and so on. And what was the role of Italy in general? And then I slowly, slowly, actually it took me five years to find it out, to find an answer, five years of research, and not just in Italian archives, but in Swiss archives, in German archives, in Austrian archives, in Argentina, in the United States, in the National Archives, and so on and so on five years of research, and I have to say that most of this research was done in my free time at night, on the weekends, and, uh, you know, unpaid vacations and unpaid leaves. Yep, that's how it started. Well, um, I think that amount of persistence and dedication makes you an honorary American. (laughs) If you don't have citizenship (laughs) yet, you definitely... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you definitely. Yeah. I know, I know, I can do it. Yeah, you definitely can. No, um, well, that, that's kind of an inspiring story in a way because a lot of uh, faculty members in the United States will uh, go to faculty meetings and complain about how their research is not supported, and they can't do anything. And I always say to myself, "Well, if you really want to go do it, why don't you go do it?" <laughs> so, and it seems as but if you, you did. Of course, you can still do it, but it's not easy at all. No. Especially with such a huge topic, in my case, it was really, really difficult to cover all these different aspects. Because so far, the research that the books who were out at this point in time, uh, they only looked at certain aspects. For example, the role of 
I don't know about Argentina individual biographies, Eichmann, mm -hmm. for for example, or other very prominent figures, but there was never an attempt to to show the whole picture. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to do. Well, you you know, it is not easy to do, and um, I congratulate you and thank you for doing it. It's really a, a it's really a remarkable thing. I don't, you know, it's. Being a historian myself, I often think to myself, could I have written this book? And the answer is profoundly no. I could not have written this book. I don't, I don't have the persistence or the talent to have done this, to have discovered what you discovered. <laughs> you know what I could have done? Yeah. I could have, uh, I could have written three books based on this one. Yeah. No, I imagine that's true. <laughs> I imagine that's true. There is a tremendous amount of material in here. And, you know, this is yeah. one of these books that will spawn 50 dissertations. Because you do, Maybe. well, it, I think so, because you, you uncover so many, much good archival material uh, yeah. that could be dealt with. There are many, 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 you know, there, I won't say there are loose strands in the book, but there are many topics that are started that could be dissertations and books in themselves. And uh, so I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really terrific book in that way. You kind of, I mean, I don't want to speak too hyperbolically here, but you kind of founded a field and, and that's a very nice thing to have done. You've, you've said, look, here's a very interesting topic, something that we really care about, and here is how you go about finding out about it. These are the places I mean, you go. I mean, think about it. This is also very important, uh, basically, to realize that this story of national socialism and fascism, this kind of afterlife, the life after 45, after the end of the Second World War, this was hardly researched at all. Mm -hmm. There's not much out there. On the other hand, everything before 45, the history of the Third Reich, the Nazi regime, Hitler and so on, there's so many books out there. Yeah. No, there's so many books out there. It's just an, an enormous research effort over so many years. But the history after 45, yeah. hardly, also not much. Yeah. Not yeah. much changing now because the archives open and the Cold War is over. And this had, of course, clearly consequences yeah. for research for contemporary history. Yeah. And not just the Eastern European archives are open, but also in Western Europe yeah. and in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you're quite right about that. I mean, I interviewed someone, uh, I guess it was a few months ago, who had written a, it wasn't a biography of Hitler, but it was a book about Hitler's uh, service during World War One. You might have read the book. Um, um, I don't recall the name of it right now. It was very. It's a very good book, but one of the things I ask him is, how could you, how could you write another book about Hitler? I mean, how, it, I mean, isn't that really a kind of difficult thing to do? Because don't we already know everything about Hitler? And I mean, I think we really almost do. I mean, we, I, I recall a passage in a um, uh, a book about the origins of the uh, Final Solution um, that traces where Hitler was every day for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah, does yeah. a really good job of it, you know, really yeah. who he met with and, you know, what he talked about and what he ate for dinner and all that stuff and very useful stuff. And because he, you know, this, this particular historian was really trying to pinpoint when, um, yeah. when the final solution was, it was kind of decided upon. And, uh, but you know, that degree of, uh, that, that degree of knowledge, that kind of fine grain approach, I mean, it, at, a, at a certain point you get diminishing returns. Because, you know, you can just go over the same thing again and again and again. But, I mean, I'm not saying that books about Hitler, books about the Final Solution or Nazism are, are doing that. But, uh, but it certainly is nice to see somebody uh, take the story a, a little bit further. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a particularly nice, nice thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, more, I'm more interested in what happened after 45. Yeah. Well, yeah Integration no. of former Nazis in the society, denazification, non-denazification, was it successful or not? 
right. the compromises that had been made. Nuremberg uh, just this uh, that the rule of law or the other options, because the Americans after 45 they did a very good job, I think, and the Europeans, especially Germans and Austrians, should always be thankful for that. The Americans decided to go with the rule of law, to have mm-hmm. a court of law, mm-hmm. to you know persecute these people and to sentence these people. Mm-hmm. And the other option is always revenge mm-hmm. at the end of such regimes, like in Italy. Mussolini mm-hmm. was killed in Cola. Oh, yeah. right. There was no trial. Right. And 15,000 15, Italians were killed around mm-hmm. the same time. Wow. Out of revenge, mm. there was no court, there was no uh, rule of law, there was no never an Italian Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. Italy still has a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, very, that's a very so, interesting. The Americans, the U.S. did the right thing, I think, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a as I say, I think that it is a fertile topic for further research. I think that uh, what what happened in Germany after the war was quite remarkable. Uh, it was unprecedented. I'm sure it was unprecedented. Um, and it, you know, it just deserves to be studied. There's just a lot of interesting things that were going on there. Um, well, let's turn to the book itself. The one thing, Go ahead. The, the one thing that you mentioned, you know, the conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. I think that's also one thing that's very important in my book, to learn from my book, that we have a tendency to believe, it's just human nature, I think, it's my guess, to believe in easy explanations, um, mm-hmm. black, white, good and evil, or if conspiracy theories, and they were decimated based on, uh, you know, Simon Wiesenthal's books and, and his stories, and Simon Wiesenthal was the so-called famous Nazi hunter in Vienna, and mm-hmm. uh, his friends, but also his enemies, called him so, uh, Nazi yeah. hunter, and uh, he was not a historian. I have enormous respect for Simon Wiesenthal for various reasons, uh, because he had a very difficult time in Austria, and he was reminding the Austrians of their responsibility mm-hmm. when nobody wanted to listen in 1956. Yeah. Everybody wanted to forget about it. And this it, creation of the Odessa myth, you know, of this organization of former SS members, who according to Wiesenthal was almighty and had uh, power and, uh, you know, unlimited resources and money in the Swiss banks and centrally organized. And according to Wiesenthal, the Odessa organization would organize the underground uh, movement and the escape of these perpetrators like Eichmann, Mengele, and many others to overseas. And uh, together with uh, the novelist uh, Frederick Forsyth, they created a very strong uh, image, a very yeah. strong mystical explanation. And when the book came out, The Odessa Files by Frederick Forsyth, a British novelist, and then the movie based on yep. the novel, movie became a worldwide success and mm-hmm. the book became a bestseller. It's not like my book, yeah? <laughs> uh, the Odessa file was, was sold in millions. Uh, my, my book never will be like that. I don't know. Uh, we're, we're pushing it as hard as we can. It's a great Christmas gift. No. <laughs> no, it will not because my book has no easy answers and conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories of course, offer very easy answers in yeah. terms of black and white. And that's why the Odessa myth was so successful and still to this very day, if people ask me, so what was your latest book about? Uh, and I tell them, I say, ah, about Odessa. I said, no, no, Odessa never existed. It's yeah. a mythical explanation. It, right. There was never such an organization so almighty with unlimited resources, centrally organized. Such an organization never did exist. Yeah. And uh, it, they, they have a hard time believing me. <laughs> yeah, it's a peculiar irony. You don't mention it in the book, but I'm sure it occurred to you that um, someone like Simon Wiesenthal would think that there was a conspiracy when the Nazis thought that there was a Jewish conspiracy that there wasn't. Um, I, I just find I, that. I think, I think Simon Wiesenthal was, I met him once in Vienna, and I think he was a very really? intelligent wow. man. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure 
I'm sure he was very aware of the fact that this explanation is very simple and simplistic, you know, kind of uh-huh, simplifying simple, yeah. the real story. But he used it as a tool. Yeah. It's the tool to keep this topic alive. Right. Right. Well, he wasn't the only person that used a tool like that. What, why? Let me ask this before we actually talk about what happened, because <laughs> we should get to that. Um, yeah. Why did he, did, did someone tell him that uh, there was this organization or did, did he, uh, you know, yeah. I don't want to accuse him of fabricating it. How, how did he come to believe that it, that it existed? Well, uh, very short answer. Uh, the Americans were expecting such organization. They were expecting underground movement, werewolf movement, mm-hmm. kind of partisan, Nazi partisan, mm-hmm. after the defeat in Germany and Austria. And they were kind of uh, seeing whatever little incident, you know, every little thing they would say, well, this is part of this conspiracy and the underground movement of the Nazis. Timo mm-hmm. was working for the Americans, for the American Counterintelligence Corps at the time. Mm-hmm. He was involved in such little uh, incidents. He knew about smaller groups and you know, that's when the Odessa story kind of started, mm-hmm. based on little incidents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is it is very useful compared to the messy reality, which you uh, describe in, in, in great detail and, and, and uh, it is hard to get your mind around. Let's let's start telling that story. Uh, one of the things you point out, which I think is important to remember, is that the, the rats were planning their exodus from the sinking ship really quite early, even in 44. They were talking about how they were going to get away. Can you talk about that a little bit? I don't think so, really. Okay. Actually, I think uh, uh, one of the findings in the book is that in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, nobody got out of Europe. Nobody got out of Europe. Nobody. There was no submarine waiting for Mark Foreman yeah. uh, in Hamburg and then, you know, uh, uh, to the direction of South America or Nebraska or somewhere else. Uh, in '45, nobody got out of Europe. It uh-huh. started actually in '46 uh-huh. and went on until 1950. And it basically stopped in June 1950 when the Cold War became hot with the war in Korea. Yeah. So the whole escape of perpetrators can only understood, and, and of course Nazis and collaborators from all over Europe, not just Germans and Austrians, uh, in the context of the early Cold War. Mm-hmm. I guess, but I guess my question was, hadn't they been thinking about, I, I know that in the case of Himmler, even before the Reich fell, he was thinking about ways that he might save his skin. Weren't other Nazi officers thinking about how they might well, get Himmler, away? Himmler, Hitler, and, and others escaped from justice, uh-huh. but by suicide, yeah. committing suicide. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. And there were, there were no real plans. And when you, when you read my book, you will see that the whole escape uh, structures, they were very much improvised at the beginning, yeah. very much improvised, uh-huh. very much improvised. Okay, there well, was no sense to organize the right. organization taking care of it at all, no. Right. So then let's uh, move to the end of the war. Uh, at, at this point, um, pretty much everybody in a uniform or suspected of having a uniform on uh, gets put in a camp, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. And you make a distinction, which I didn't really know about not being a student of it, between displaced persons and refugees. Can you talk a little bit about that distinction? Yeah. I mean, people have to keep in mind that uh, at the end of the war, there was a very chaotic situation in Europe because there were millions of people on the move, millions of refugees so-called displaced persons from all over Europe, and uh, um, survivors of the Holocaust, for example, former slave laborers uh, uh, in the Nazi camps, um, the communists mm-hmm. who fled, you know, Eastern Europe, um, ethnic Germans by the millions who were expelled from Central Eastern Europe by force, you know, millions on the move. So it was a very chaotic situation at the time, and of course these Nazis and perpetrators and uh, war criminals, they 
could easily uh, assume a new identity, calling themselves refugees, expelled from the East or something, and uh, giving them away, giving them away, such and, and hiding among these millions of so-called, you know, kind of normal refugees, um, uh, poor devils mm-hmm. could only save their lives, basically, yeah. Yeah. with all different backgrounds, different backgrounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Most of these, the SS officers, and the, the, they were put in camps. What kind of camps were they? Yeah, uh, one thing is at the end of the war, people like Eichmann or others, you know, who were in the SS, and they, of course, realized they were wanted by the Allies for their crimes against humanity or war crimes. They were normally, uh, they changed their uniforms, uh, changed into Wehrmacht uniforms, mm-hmm. and uniforms of German soldiers. And was saying, well, I was just a private soldier a private in the German army. And that's how they got away. They were in the prisoners' war camps. There were hundreds and thousands of others. And uh, the occupation forces were trying to screen these people, were, of course, were confronted with the masses and the chaos at the time. They couldn't do a good job. So many of these perpetrators, they stayed in uh, prisoners' of war camps mm-hmm. in 46, 47. And then in 47, 46, uh, some of them made it to Italy. Because Italy soon became the way out. It was the easiest way out. It was the closest way to the seaport. People at the time, like the, the airplane, they wouldn't fly to from Europe. They would go to the seaport, like Genoa, which mm-hmm. was the closest port in terms of geography. And then there is another thing that it, why Italy became so popular as a destination, uh, as a loophole, but not just for perpetrators and that, but also for refugees, for normal refugees, in order to leave Europe and start a new life overseas, United States, Canada, South America, and so on. In Italy, there was no Allied control. Mm-hmm. There was no Allied military government anymore. In December 45, uh, the Allied military government, AMG, was basically dissolved. And uh, there were no Allied controls anymore. So the moment you're in Italy, as a former SS officer or whatever, you're kind of safe. In Germany, the situation was very diff- different. Germany was occupied before occupation force. You couldn't just go to Hamburg and take a ship. In Italy, you could. So that's why Italy became so popular. It was so close. When you look at the map of Europe, uh, southern, uh, so central Europe, southern Bavaria, southern Germany, western Austria, Italy is the easiest way to get to a seaport. And there was no Allied control anymore. Mm-hmm. And the Italian authorities also had no interest to check these people. The Italians, uh, Italy was full of refugees was a destroyed country after war and civil war, and the Italian government just wanted to get rid of these refugees as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Who Who is in charge of actually establishing the identity of the German uh, soldiers and officers and SS members in these camps? How, how are their documents checked? Who did it? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was kind of a screening, a screening commission. There were screening commissions set up. They were trying to... Uh, find out the background of these people and, of course, uh, trying to, to find uh, perpetrators, uh, you know, wanted people from the Allied Wanted list who were on lists, yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, these uh, Allied officers were helped by the Germans or Austrians, and they were sometimes uh, not so helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was not so effective. And in '47. So these people, these perpetrators, they, they started to go to Italy and to travel overseas. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did they live in the camps? That I don't really know much about these camps. Were they places where, you know, the prisoners of camps that I, I know of where there were German soldiers were largely in the east during the war and they, they uh, starved or were worked to death? What were these camps like? No, also in, in, in Germany and Austria, there were prisoners of war camps, especially, uh-huh. of course, uh, camps from the Western Allies, the British, the French, and mm-hmm. the U.S. Americans. Um, the German and the Austrian prisoners of war were treated uh, according to the Geneva Conventions, uh-huh. to international uh, law. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And was escaping? They were not starved to death, and they were not worked to death, so uh-huh. they were right. treated more or less uh, correctly. Mm-hmm. Was it easy? Prisoners of war. Was it easy to escape from these camps? Did people just walk over the border, or was it? Uh, were they were they tightly controlled? Did they have? Well, at, at the beginning in forty five, forty six, they were very much tightly controlled. But then in forty seven, with the Cold War becoming, uh, you know, more and more obvious, <laughs> and the conflict between East and West more and more dramatic, denazification uh, became less and less important. And denazification basically stopped in 1950, the because the war in Korea broke out, and the new policy was, well, the Nazi history, the Second World War, these crimes, that's a closed chapter. We had Nuremberg, we had some denazification, we have to move on. And the new enemy is now communism and the Soviet Union, and we have to be united. We need the Germans again, we need these old Nazis again, because after all, they are anti-common, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. So we have a common enemy. Let's work together. Let's move on. Nazification was over. Mm-hmm. By 1950. So uh, take us through the, if you don't mind, the denazification process and tell us where it broke down. So uh, let's just take a hypothetical. They find someone uh, in one of these camps uh, that they suspect of being an SS member. Uh, the, the person denies it and says that they are uh, Gefreite in the uh, in the Wehrmacht or something. And uh, w- what happens then? How do they establish yeah, a person's example, identity? Uh, the case of Adolf Eichmann, mm-hmm. uh, that happened to him. Uh, he could hide in a, in a prison of war camp for quite a while. Of course, he gave himself away as just private of the German army. Uh-huh. Many did. Uh, at the very end of the war, it was easy you know, to get a new uniform instead of the, throw the SS uniform away. Uh-huh. and get a German Wehrmacht uniform. Um, of course, the problem was that some of these SS officers had uh, the, the tattoo. The tattoo, the yeah. Group. Mm-hmm. So this, of course, uh, gave them away as SS members. The German army soldiers didn't have that. But uh, some of them were successful removing that. Others didn't have that, and so on and so on. But... Uh, at some point in time, I think it was in 47, uh, Adolf Eichmann realized uh, they, they asked many questions uh, in, in the commission, you know, of his lager, of his prison of war camp, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they, they are discovering his real identity. So he decided to escape, uh, and he escaped the prison of war camp. It was not too difficult, and then he was hiding, was lying low at the farm, working as a farmhand, basically, in Bavaria. And in 1950, in June 1950, that late, he uh, made his way to Italy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did this, uh, I want to think of it as a kind of <laughs> underground railroad. That's a very ungainly analogy. Mm-hmm. How did it evolve? You say it wasn't planned. That it, no, it kind of was organic. It was improvised. How, yes. How, how was it improvised? It was improvised because in 46, basically it started, started in summer 46, uh, some uh, SS officers, the former Nazis, uh, realized 
um, that in Italy there are no Allied controls anymore. So once they are in Italy, they can easily go to Genoa, to the seaport, and get a ship that brings them to overseas. And widespread, people are talking. And mm-hmm. in the prisoners of war camp, people were talking and saying, do you hear about him? Do you hear about our former comrade who, who escaped a year ago? He's now in Italy. And mm-hmm. this, you know, people were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and always more and more of these SS officers and perpetrators and former Nazis, uh, used this route. They came to Austria first, to the Austrian-Italian border. The Austrian-Italian border, there were many people smugglers. And these people smugglers, they were not smuggling only perpetrators or Nazis. They were also smuggling survivors of the Holocaust, or Jews who survived mm-hmm. the Holocaust in terms of the Nazis. The people smugglers made no distinction. It was their job. They wanted to make money in these difficult years. Living in a border town, this was a, you know, a good way uh, to make some extra cash. And that's why they did it. And sometimes also out of political reasons. And they smuggled these people across to the border to Italy. And it's interesting that in Italy, basically, survivors of the Holocaust and perpetrators met again. Because the survivors of the Holocaust, the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, they also left Europe in large numbers, not surprisingly. Many of them wanted to get to Palestine, future Israel, but there was the British blockade. The British didn't allow the Jewish refugees to come to Palestine. Mm-hmm. So the Jewish underground, the Jewish uh, you know, survivors of the Holocaust had to come, had to travel uh, to Palestine illegally. And the easiest way out of Europe was Italy also for them. So people like Eichmann then, they came to Italy. Eichmann had no money. He was from a simple background. He had to rely on support of the Catholic Church. So he would stay in monasteries. He was always very grateful later when, when his trial was in Jerusalem. He said so. He was very grateful for the Catholic priest to help him. And uh, then Eichmann said in his memories, uh, that's why I decided to become a honorary member of the Catholic Church, uh, because they helped him so much. Yeah. And they not just didn't, you know, uh, shelter him and, and provide him with food and, and, and housing, but they also organized him new travel documents. The travel documents were, of course, crucial in order to travel overseas. He needed a travel document in order to obtain a visa and in order to leave Europe. Yeah, I wanted to talk about travel documents. How, how, how did one go about getting them? Well, the travel documents for especially ethnic Germans were issued by the International Committee of the Red Cross. Why did the Red Cross do that? I mean, traditionally, the Red Cross would take care of prisoners of war not refugees. That's not traditionally the job of the International Red Cross. Mm-hmm. But because of this emergency situation, millions of people on the move, displaced persons in Europe, chaotic situation, and the International Refugee Organization, who was set up by the Allies, declared it's not responsible for ethnic Germans. They were saying, well, the Germans are, you know, kind of the perpetrator people, the uh, perpetrator folk, and we are not in charge. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're not, we're not going to help them. So the International Red Cross helped out because of this uh, human emergency, humanitarian emergency, and they started to issue travel documents for this, uh, so specifically, uh, ethnic Germans. The travel documents were recognized as international travel oh, really? documents okay. for traveling overseas worldwide, oh. kind of passport, really? like a passport. Huh. They were recognized from many countries, from many countries oh. as a passport. Yeah, I didn't know that. kind of passport, huh. yes. Uh-huh. Because one of the places that they had, dif- I mean, that the, the escapees had difficulty was, in fact, in intra-German borders, where they would be yes. checked. Isn't that right? What kind of yes. travel documents did they use there? 
That's why they wanted to get out of, of Germany, because Germany was occupied, and of course, in between the occupation zones, the British, French, American, and Soviets, of course, there were very strict controls. And uh, there were all kinds of documents issued at the time. It was chaotic. Sometimes people had, an, had a, you know, a driver's license, of course, from the Circle Ice Bill, or had a document from the community or from, from the International Refugee Organization. It, it was very, it was very confusing situation. But the refugees who came to Italy, they would apply for international uh, uh, travel document from the Red Cross for the ethnic Germans. And these perpetrators like Eichmann, they would uh, state that they're refugees, that they're ethnic Germans, that they were expelled from the East, that they lost everything, that they have no citizenship anymore, that the Red Cross should issue them travel documents. And that's what the Red Cross did. But the problem is, there was no screening process. There were hardly any checks, so the Red Cross would basically accept every kind of explanation, whatever name was stated, whatever identity was stated, were basically uh, put on this document and issued. And then these people had a valid travel document, basically a passport from the International Red Cross, like Eichmann, like mm-hmm. Adolf Eichmann. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So how did the um, escapees fund their departure? Because as you said, Eichmann, for example, had no money. Uh, and it would seem to me that you would need some money to pay the coyotes, as we call them in the United States, that is, people that bring you over the border, and also to, I guess, live in Italy while you waited, and then to buy a ticket to wherever you were going. Yes. I mean, uh, there was no Odessa organization, so right. <laughs> nobody centrally financed these operations. So you really have to look case by case. Uh, Eichmann had no money. He was from modest background. He had to ask for loans. Or mm-hmm. from people, you know, former SS members in Italy, especially in South Tyrol, in this northern Italian region. Mm-hmm. He helped, of course, former comrades without asking for money. Out of ideological, political reasons or so-called camaradjas, mm-hmm. comradeship. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, and uh, very often people had to ask for loans because one thing is for clear, is clear. This is also something you have to keep in mind. In 45, Germany, Austria was destroyed, the industry, at least in part. But there were still, the mines were still there. The technological process, you know, the, the, um, the, the, during the Third Reich, especially in the war industry, was so, so interesting for many countries. So the Americans would, would try to get as many German mines as possible. Very famous example is Werther von Braun, mm-hmm. you know, with the rocket program and mm-hmm. his technicians. The Soviets would do the same. The British would do the same. Everybody wants, uh, Argentinians, everybody wanted to have as many as German experts, engineers, technicians as possible. There was a real mind train from Germany to all these countries. Mm-hmm. This is important to keep in mind. So people like Eichmann, when they applied for the Red Cross document, they would say, well, they wouldn't say I was a mass murderer. I was in the SS and I was in charge of transportation list, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was in charge of the so called final solution. He would say he would state under profession, I'm a technician, I'm an engineer. Why? Because these people were wanted and for these kind of people, for this kind of professions, these immigration countries like uh, Argentina would issue visas. Yeah, I was gonna ask about visas. How, so how... so these people and uh, very often the Argentinian, for example, other uh, uh, embassies or consulates would say, Yeah you get a contract with us, you have this expertise, you're an engineer, you're a technician, you're an expert of the Air Force, 
you are an expert in water uh, industry, whatever it is, and we will get your job in Argentina, in Brazil, wherever. And when you're there and when you start your job, after a while you'll pay us back if you're on loan. And once you're in Argentina, we'll start to work for the industry. We will, you can pay us back, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So did anybody check that they uh, were actually engineers or anything like that? Or did they just go to Argentina no. or Ecuador? There were no checks, really. Uh -huh. There were no checks, really. Not at all. You could state whatever you wanted on these travel documents. You uh -huh. could tell to the Red Cross official, I'm this and that. My name is Hans-Peter uh, Marshall, whatever. Uh -huh. You would just accept what, whatever you were saying. Your citizenship, most of these people, of course, would say you're uh, Less because this was yeah. the precondition for obtaining a Red Cross travel document. Huh. So uh, even Austrians and Germans would say, well, I'm an ethnic German from Eastern Europe, from Russia, Romania, from Czechoslovakia. I have no citizenship anymore. I was expelled. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ethnic cleansing going on and so on. And uh, so they would say, I'm, I'm stateless. They would change the birth date, the, the profession, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. But I just let, let me give you another example. Okay. Joseph Mengele, Joseph Mengele, he was, of course, a camp doctor in Auschwitz extermination concentration camp, and uh, he was uh, he, he conducted these horrible experiments, especially mm -hmm. with twins. Mm -hmm. And after the end of the war, he also made it in Italy. He also took the same uh, routine, kind of, the same um, way how these people got out, obtained the Red Cross doc uh, travel documents, uh, and... Um, he came from a very well-off family. Mengele land machines, Mengele agricultural machines, mm -hmm. they're very big still to this very day. So when I go in, you know, to my home country, to Tyrol, these agricultural machines, Mengele, with mm -hmm. the name of the family, <laughs> yeah, Mengele is all over the place. Mm -hmm. And whenever I go home and, and, and walk by a farm or so, I see this agricultural machinery, of course, I think about Joseph Mengele, the black sheep of the family, or brown yeah. sheep, I have to yeah. say, of the family. Right. And he was very much supported. He didn't stay in a monastery in Italy. He, of course, stayed in a hotel. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So how did they um, choose where they were going to go or how were they selected? We, we associate these escapees with Argentina, but as you point out in the book, they went quite a few places. How, how did they decide where they were going to go? Uh, it often had to do with, uh, with the policy of these immigration countries. For example, uh, Argentina was very interested in, in uh, German um, officers, former German officers of the Wehrmacht, with German army, but also Air Force. Juan Garon uh, especially wanted to modernize his uh, Argentinian Air Force with the help of uh, German engineers, technicians, and pilots. So they were in particular very welcome. And Argentina, long before the Third Reich, long before the Nazis, had a strong tradition uh, with, with, you know, German... Uh, uh, kind of German German culture, German military exchange was always very German friendly. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you probably know, there are three immigration groups in Argentina: people of Spanish background, people of Italian background, and people of German speaking. Mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. So the German speaking a German community in Argentina is very old. It's much older, of course, than the Nazi time, Nazi regime, and these ties are much older and, and very strong. So of course, Argentina was a popular destination but also other South American countries, also Canada, very popular, but also the United States. Just a week ago, I, I did some research about one Austrian SS officer who immigrated to the United States in 1949 to Rhode Island. Mm 
died in 2004. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the Near East was also very popular, especially Egypt, Egypt and uh, Syria, mm. because they were interested to, to, to have as much as military know-how as possible in order to mobilize and fight against Israel. So, and it, it depended, to answer your question, it depended very much on job offers, possibilities. So if, if a former famous, like Hans Ulrich Hodel or Gallant, famous German fighter pilot, mm-hmm. if they get a job offer from the Argentinian army, of course they would go to Argentina. Mm-hmm. But if an Austrian engineer got a job offer from Egypt, he would of course, uh, go to Egypt with his family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the most interesting parts of the book, uh, I thought, was the um, again spontaneous organization of a group of again we call them the United States Coyotes, uh, people who will take you across the border for a certain amount of money, um, and, and this developed into quite a, an industry in in Tyrol. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I talked about this a little bit earlier. Yeah. These people smugglers. Yeah, this was kind of business at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, people. Uh, it was a very difficult time economically. It was a chaotic situation, and many people made uh, made some good uh, uh, business out of that. Um, it was very widespread. You know, it was not a secret at all. Um, many people were involved in this kind of smuggling, smuggling, but also people smuggling in the years after the Second World War. So, did War. they do this out of sympathy for the Germans, or did they do it out of uh, monetary interest, or both? Well. Well, in particular, it was a little bit of a mix, you know, uh, various of motivations. It, it depends very much on the individual case. It's very difficult, especially with these topics, to generalize. Um, sometimes out of money, sometimes out of, um, yeah, they just wanted to help refugees, um, uh, and, and, and sometimes out of political convictions of some uh, former Nazis and SS officers who helped other former Nazis and SS officers from Germany, from Austria, to escape to Italy. They were organizing uh, them um, safe houses and, and, and food and so on and so on and travel tickets. There were also some Nazi networks. There was no Odessa. It was never centrally organized. It was never almighty and powerful with unlimited resources. But of course, there were some uh, networks of former SS officers and former SS soldiers who helped each other in order to get out of Europe, but also the ones who stayed in Europe to start a new career in Europe, mm-hmm. for example, in the private industry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them did. There were, there were networks. There's yeah. no doubt about that. A former, a former SS members, and sometimes people who served in the same unit, in the same division, you know, mm-hmm. the same regu- regiment, they continued uh, their lives uh, and, and helped each other after 45 with a new beginning, kind of, overseas or in Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, another and kind of controversial aspect of the um, entire affair, and that is the involvement of uh, the, the German Catholic representative in uh, in Rome, uh, whose name escapes me. Hudal is that his name? Alois Hudal. Hudal, yeah. Hudal, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about him, Hudal? Yeah. Well, the, well, I have to talk a little bit about the involvement of some Catholic. Um, uh, circles, uh, some people inside the Catholic Church, not the Catholic Church per se, uh, because the Catholic Church is a huge organization. There are many different voices and many different positions and opinions. It's not one block, of mm-hmm. course. But the Vatican, uh, is, is a little bit involved in, in this, uh, in, 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 in this, um, topic 
because of the Vatican Commission of Refugees. Also the Vatican, like the Red Cross, set up a commission in order to help these refugees from all over Europe. And the Vatican, of course, had an interest in particular to help Catholic refugees, people had of Catholic background, especially from Central and Eastern Europe, who had to flee from there and who had to start a new life somewhere else in Europe or overseas. Um, and um, the Vatican Commission for Refugees, they were kind of uh, cooperating or uh, helping the Red Cross in issuing these travel documents, and especially important were these uh, letters of reference, reference letters from the Vatican Commission of Refi Refugees to the Red Cross. For example, people like Franz Stangl. Franz Stangl was the commander of Treblinka extermination camp, mm -hmm. as were clearly a very prominent perpetrator of the Holocaust. He uh, asked the Vatican Commission for Refugees for a letter of reference, they gave him such a letter, you know, with the letterhead, of course, of the Vatican and everything, an authority. Don't forget, the Catholic Church was an authority in Italy at the time. Basically, the only authority left, there was no state authority anymore in Italy after 45, because mm -hmm. of war, civil war. The Catholic Church, the Vatican, was the only real authority in Italy. So with this letter of reference from the Vatican, Franz Stangl, the, the commander of Treblinka, would go to the Red Cross a few days later, to the delegation of the International Red Cross, would put this letter from the Vatican on the table, on the desk, and say, please issue me a travel document. Mm -hmm. And the officer, of course, uh, the official of the Red Cross would, would ask no questions at all. Say, okay, that's your name, that's your birthday, that's your citizenship, fine. Mm -hmm. And that's how he got the travel document from the Red Cross. No mm -hmm. questions asked. But there was an involvement, and especially when you have a closer look, some people in the Vatican Commission of Refugees know exactly what was going on and what the background of these people, of some of these people were. Most of these people were, of course, simple refugees, but some of these people were hiring Nazis as SS officers and perpetrators. So not just morally guilty, but also guilty in a legal sense, very much so. And uh, when you have a closer look, who was in charge of this Vatican Commission for Refugees? This Vatican Commission of Refugees was kind of organized according to nationalities. So there was a Croatian uh, subcommittee, there was a Slovenian subcommittee, an Ukrainian subcommittee, but there was also a German-Austrian subcommittee. And head of the German-Austrian subcommittee of this Commission for Refugees of the Vatican was Bishop Alois Udal, a bishop, mm -hmm. a bishop. And he was clearly pro-Nazi in 1937. He wrote a book, for example, with the title The Principles of National Socialism. As a Catholic bishop, he tried to explain what the, what the ideas of National Socialism are. Yeah? And he dedicated this book to Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. Considered himself always being a bridge builder between the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and the Nazis, and thought there must be a compromise, and a compromise can be made. And very luckily, very good for the people who wanted to escape the perpetrators, he was in charge after 1945 for the German-Austrian section of this Vatican Commission for Refugees in Rome. And on many application documents for the Red Cross, for the Red Cross travel documents, you will find the address of Bishop Alois Huder in Rome, mm -hmm. Via della Pace, number 20. Mm -hmm. And of course, also in the case of Franz Stangl. So Bishop Alois Huder clearly knew uh, who these people were. Mm -hmm. Mm. And he was actively helping them to get new identities. Mm -hmm. In the case of Franz Stangl, just to give you an example again, stick with this example. 
on the travel document, the official name is Paul Stangl. And, and when, when, when Franz Stangl saw this, then he, he protested yeah. the official, uh, Bishop Monsignore, you know, uh, you made a mistake. My name is Paul. My name is, uh, my, my name is Franz, excuse me. My name is Franz, not Paul, but you made a mistake here. And then the bishop said, Bishop Huda said to Franz Stangl, the commander of Treblinka, termination camp, uh, it's better to, uh, let sleeping dogs, uh, lie. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he, of course, knew that Stangl was wanted by the Allies for crimes he committed. Well, uh, and uh, the reasons why these people helped, you know, these clergymen, simple clergymen in Italy, some of them from the Catholic clergy or bishops like Huda, all kinds of reasons, political reasons, pro-national, socialist, pro-fascist, but very often anti-communist. This was very important in the early Cold War years, anti-communist. And sometimes also out of religious reasons, forgiveness was a very strong notion in the Catholic Church. Forgiveness, very strong in, in Catholic teaching. And uh, uh, But there were different reasons why people helped. It's not always this political pro-Nazi attitude like in the case of Bishop Huda. I want to ask one uh, final question, and, and it leads us back to the Odessa file of great infamy now. According to that story and the story of Simon Wiesenthal, th- there was a massive conspiracy of former SS officers that smuggled people out of Germany and to places like Argentina as a conspiracy. It was secret. Uh, your book suggests something rather different, and I just want to read a passage from it because I just think it's a remarkable way to open the book. And it is from uh, actually the very first page of the very first chapter. And it's a, it's a report to the State Department from the consulate, the U.S. consulate in Bremen. And, and he says, I assume it was he, I have the honor to report that I have had conversations with several well-informed persons who had occasion to investigate the underground route followed by Germans, particularly Schutzstaffel SS members and their relatives and other politically suspicious persons, which leads via the Tyrol and Italy to Argentina. From what I have been able to learn, there is no longer any question but that a well-established and well-marked route exists. So they knew about it. Yes, they knew about it. Everybody who was involved, the United States, the State Department in particular, but also U.S. intelligence services, the Vatican, uh, the Red Cross leadership, the president there, the Italian government, everybody, knew as early as 1946, basically the moment it started, the moment this escape of perpetrators started, they knew about it, but they didn't do anything about it. And keep in mind, Adolf Eichmann, when did he escape from Europe? When did he escape from Czech? In June 1950. Yeah. Four years after the fact was very well known in the respective organizations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it really wasn't the case... Four years that... after it was very well known. Yeah, yeah. So it really wasn't the case they organized themselves to to leave, it was that the uh, allies who were in charge of uh, catching them uh, allowed them to leave. I mean, the allies did a very good job, don't get me wrong. Uh, they did a very good job, especially the U.S. Americans, in trying, uh, by the rule of law, to bring these, these, these people to justice. No doubt about that. But then in '47, slowly the whole context changed and the Cold War became hot. And with the war in Korea, Denazification was over, and at the same time, in 1950, nobody left Europe anymore. On the contrary, in 1950, many of these people came back from South America and elsewhere and returned to Europe because it was safe. Denazification mm-hmm. was over. There was no more reason anymore to leave Europe. That is pretty remarkable. About what percentage returned? Do you know? I mean, is there any way to tell? 
Now, it's very difficult mm. uh, to state exact numbers because it depends very much on definition. Yeah. Yeah. And in my book, for example, I don't just look at most famous cases uh, of perpetrators of the Holocaust and war criminals in a legal, in a legal sense, in a legal, in a strict legal definition. But I also look at collaborators from all over Europe in form of AFMSS members. Mm-hmm. And if you include these people who are not Germans or not Austrians or Ukrainians, fascists from uh, Croatia, from Slovenia, and so on and so on, from Italy, of course, that's very high numbers, 10,000 and 10,000 mm-hmm. who actually uh, uh, fled Europe and, or immigrated to overseas. Well, it's a it's a remarkable story, and again, I congratulate you for writing the book. It does shed light on something that not only did we not know much about it, but what we thought we knew about it was wrong, and that is quite an achievement. Setting people straight is one of the things I think that historians should should do, and you have done it in a most forceful way, at least in my case. <laughs> I stand very much corrected and humbled. Let me close the interview by asking our traditional final question on new books in history, Gerald. What What are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, I'm, I'm started to, uh, to work on the Red Cross history, but in a larger context, the Red Cross in the Second World War and after 1945, and uh, how the Shoah changed um, human rights and humanitarianism, especially the Red Cross and the International Committee of the Red Cross, the laws and its policy. Well, I don't. I can't think of anyone more suited to write that than you. So <laughs> I'm, I, I eagerly await that book. I, I want to thank you very much for being on the, the show today, Gerald. We've been talking to Gerald Steinacher about his book, Nazis on the Run, How Hitler's Henchmen Fled Justice. Uh, thanks again for being with us. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Gerald Steinacher, the author of Nazis on the Run, How Hitler's Henchmen Fled Justice. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.